CalCast is delivered by FedEx, our presenting sponsor. FedEx provides solutions that help businesses simplify shipping operations and grow their reach to new customers. See how FedEx can help save your business time on shipping. Visit FedEx.com slash e-commerce to learn more. That's FedEx.com slash e-commerce. Hello, folks. Coach Cal here with the Cal Cast, and today's special guest, uh, you've all been waiting on this, is Rick Patino. And, and Rick is here. Come on in, Rick. Come on, close the door. Yeah, yeah there you go. Uh, sit down there. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody thinks that Rick and I are always at odds and we're not. Hey, yo, those aren't your brownies. My wife made those for one of our players. I said, get your hand. You, hey, get, hey, hey, get. Ah! Hey, you rat, you bit me. Why you bit me? What the? Folks, that was fake news. It did not happen. I know many of you out there hope that it really happened, that I'm coming back telling you it's, it's fake news when it really isn't fake news. No, it is fake news. It never happened. Um, Rick Patino, seven Final Fours, two national titles at different schools. It took three schools to Final Fours. Uh, he's one of two coaches to do that. I was the other. He was National Coach of the Year Numerous times. The Hall of Fame in 2013. More importantly to the Big Blue Nation, he took over Kentucky when everybody thought the program was done. On probation. Would never come back. And the next time you turn around in 96, he wins the national title. Um what he did under the circumstances, under the glow, under the absolute fan base here that's crazy, and I like to tell them they're crazy, was something to be seen. In the interview, we talk about different things, um, the Kentucky-Louisville rivalry. And I know, again, look, we don't exchange cards, no birthday cards, no Christmas cards, but you will find out that there is respect. I respect him. He respects me, but we're rivals. I mean, we're right down the road. And my hope is that you learn a little bit about him. You learn a little bit about how coaching works. Yeah, it may get ugly at times, but at the end of the day, we're all in the same profession. All right, let me, let me show a little love to Blue Apron. They've been great to us and, you know, Ellen! Um, what, what did you, you made me some sort of pasta. What was that? Well, the last thing I made was the Bucatini pasta bolognese. It was good. It was, what was in it? There were some Brussels sprouts. There were some Brussels sprouts in it that were shredded. And the pasta is the pasta like spaghetti or linguine. Uh, it's round, has little holes in it. It had ground beef in it. Well, uh, it was really good. I mean, I, I, you, you served. It served. easy serve, to make. It yeah. was quick. They you served me up. one, and then you heated it up, exactly. and I ate it. And the next night, I came in, and I said, is there any left? You said yes, and I ate the rest. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, that's, now it's gone. It is. It's, it's amazing. history. Yeah. <laughs> we had fun with that one. 
Here are some of the meals available in January. Spicy shrimp oh, and yeah. Korean rice cakes with cabbage and fura cake. Seared pork chops with farro and cranberry chutney. Spaghetti squash and marinara with mushrooms and garlic knots. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping right to your door by going to blueapron.com coach. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com coach. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, so here it is, folks, my conversation with Rick Patino. Enjoy. Really special guest, a guy I've known for mm, 35 years. Man, we're getting old. Uh, Rick Patino from right down the road from us. And I know everybody's saying, oh my gosh, he's got Rick Patino on. These two are going to fight. And we're not in the same room. He's by phone and I'm on a mic, so we're good. No one's going to hit anybody. But Rick Patino, um, ultimate competitor. I got to ask you a question before we get started. Have you read my new book? You know, I knew you was somewhere along this conversation you were going to ask that question. Um, <laughs> and when when it first came up, I looked at a you know I always read the jackets of I'm a bit avid reader and I always look at the jackets of books. And when I saw the uh, when I looked at the chapters and saw assembling the talent as number one, I immediately bought five copies for one each assistant coach <laughs> and then read it because I said, if assembling the talent is the first chapter, I'm reading it. And then I looked at knowing the fl- uh, red flag, keeping it real, the metrics don't lie. Uh, actually thinking that you were going to ask me that question, but I looked into it and I actually love the jacket. Oh, okay, really, really nice. You love the jacket? Well, let me say this. I didn't even look at your jacket. So let me say that. Your book out, I did not read. Everybody thought I copied your title and it was the publisher that came up with it and all that stuff. So um, that's funny. Well, that well, is success funny. Is a, a success is a pretty, uh, it's not a word that any of us coined. No, <laughs> no, we never... <laughs> well, if I could have, I would have, by the way. But uh, uh, let me let, let's I want to get into the back background stuff. But I got to do this first because we got to talk rivalry. No one has the perspective on Kentucky Louisville that you have because you coached at both schools. Talk about, you know, because everybody talks about these other rivalries. But this one here is and, you know, both sides, the uniqueness of it. So tell us your perspective on it. Well, you know, coming from, I know you, you came from Pittsburgh, I come from New York, and when you come from New York, you know, college basketball wasn't really a big deal back then. There was no Big East, and you rooted for the Knicks, you had your professional team, and then I come to Kentucky, and, and the equipment manager is Bill Kitely, and the way he talks about Louisville is, it's it's like Lucifer with horns, and, and I, I thought Denny Crum had horns coming out of his head the way he was talking. And then I met Kay Wood Lefford, who's the ultimate gentleman, and he would tell me about the early days and what it meant. And, you know, people on a hillside in eastern Kentucky listening to the radio to, to just get the the last play of the game. And and then you realize that we don't have professional sports. By and large, we're a poor state. And what the people had is Kentucky basketball in the pocket in the middle of the middle is Louisville basketball because there are no professional teams. So when I arrived, 
and you get educated by Kay Wood, Bill, and, and all the people, it realize it's a symbol of pride. It's their life. And it's, it was tough for me to understand because sports has always been a, a meaningful distraction, uh, and we're into it big time, but I never knew that you're not going to have a wedding on a game night. You're never going to get buried at a funeral. <laughs> and, and I, what, witnessed, what I witnessed for my years there was something to behold. And then I come to Louisville, Louisville a little bit different. They're very passionate. They want to beat Kentucky, but there's more. Uh, we have about 450,000 Kentucky fans in our town. There's probably about 5,000 fans in Lexington, but they would never admit to it. So they would be, <laughs> they would definitely never admit to it. So it's a little bit different, but the rivalry is special because the fans make it special. And as I look back on rivalries, you know, I, we had a bitter, bitter rivalry uh, with Jim Calhoun at Northeast and I was at BU. We didn't like each other at that time. Where the schools didn't like each other. It was more of a hockey thing, and we took it out on basketball. When the game was over, the Boston Globe would put it on page eleven or twelve, and and that would there would be thousand two thousand people in the stands. It's so different in the state of Kentucky. It's oh, so different, oh, and it's, it's oh, something. I got to live with the game. I got to live with the game. You just beat us. I got to live with this now for a year. You crazy? This is nuts down here. Well, how would you like to live with it being one and eight? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, hey, how about how about, though, the fans on both sides of this? Um, it is I, I don't think they hate each other. I just don't believe that. But I'll tell you what, they keep an eye on each other. There's like you're not going to lose sight of the other guy. And how about the one, the greatest story? And I didn't mean to cut you off, but I'll do that occasionally. I can't help myself. The one where they were getting dialysis together, one was a Louisville fan, one was a Kentucky fan, and they started talking and arguing. All of a sudden, they stood up, they start swinging at each other. Are you crazy? <laughs> You're getting dialysis. What are you doing? <laughs> These people and that, are nuts. And that's, and that's what makes it different than North Carolina Duke and, and all of that, because there are other schools. You have professional football. You have professional basketball. Uh, people here grow up with basketball on their minds as, as young kids. They know the history and, you know, people that you're with on a daily basis, you know, that you work with the ex, ex great players, they revered for the rest of their lives. I mean, Daryl Griffith, when he walks in this town, he's revered for even a guy like Russ Smith, who was a two-star athlete coming out of high school is revered. And there's no place like that. And that's what makes Kentucky so special and the rivalry so special. All right. How about this? You took over. This program, it was on probation. You know, I took over. It was struggling, but it wasn't – I didn't have the the stuff that you were up against. Now, I got to tell everybody, you practiced in Memorial. There was no AC in that building. You had a weight room in a little corner. You remember that angled yep. weight room you had? Yep. Um, if you didn't have CM Newton, they wouldn't have built those new offices you had. If you look at those offices now, you would come back and say, no, these were the offices we were in. And they were the new offices. Or you'd have been in the ticket office in Memorial Hall where Joe B and all the guys were. Again, when you took over and you came in this thing and you had to change a culture and you had to say, look, man, this is, this is we got a tough road. Can you talk about that stuff? Yeah, I was blown away when I, when I arrived at the facilities. When you think of Kentucky, you think... You know, obviously, it's going to be the Taj Mahal, and you're going to. I did hear about the Wildcat Lodge, but the facilities were downtrodden. Which is old then. It yep. was 25 years old then. 
everything was antiquated and there was no weight room. There were barbells on the floor behind the pleaches and, and I, I couldn't believe it. And then I had to send a good friend of yours who works at Rock Oliver. I said, Rock, you need to go around. I hear that the players are getting discounts at, at this store. They're getting this uh, discounts here. I want you to go around and intimidate all these people and, and tell them <laughs> that if I find out that they're giving any discounts at all, I'm pulling their season tickets. And he would come back and say, who the hell is that in New York? I think he is trying to tell us what to do. <laughs> and we did it. We went around store to store, making sure they understood the rules, making sure they understood everything. So you had to change every single thing. But I, I, every single night that I went to bed, I would just say to myself, is this make a make-believe world that I'm living in right now? Because it was, a, it was so much attention. You go to a grocery store and people come up to you and, and start asking you questions about every recruit that I didn't even know the sophomores or the juniors, and they, they knew their names. So it is, a, it is an incredible fishbowl. It's, it's different. Louisville and Kentucky are a little different there. Uh, the they'll follow it in Louisville, but it's 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 not that way. It's it's much different in that regard. But the passion for the game itself is incredible. But at Kentucky, we had to turn it around, and CM Newton was a, was a big catalyst for that turnaround. Uh, I've worked for three ads kind of my life, and uh, actually four. And Lou Lamarillo was as strong an AD, uh, hockey great, was in the Hall of Fame at Providence College. He was as strong an AD as I've seen, a powerful man. Then I worked for C.M. Newton, who was just the biggest supporter of everybody, go around and just so positive with everybody, you felt like going through a wall for him. And now Tom Jurich, the same way Tom Jurich is nothing that he won't do to make your program at a level of excellence. Well, Without C.M. Newton and Jamal Mashburn, I'm not sure we could have got through those tough times the way we did. Uh, Mashburn just obviously cut it in half the, the building time, and C.M. Newton was just such a great supporter that we got through very, very tough times. Imagine Jamal Mashburn choosing the school when there's no TV and he can't play in the NCAA tournament with today's generation. No, wouldn't happen. Were the offices built when you got here, or were they built as you were coming? No, they were built after I, after I got there. And the weight room was built. And it, literally, that weight room now we would both laugh at, correct? And it was the new one. Yep, it was the new one. There, there was no weight room. There was no... Everything was so antiquated. It was They just lived on the reputation of Kentucky basketball. It was the name. But from a facility standpoint, everybody would really be shocked knowing what we have today. Do you know who's living in your house in Lexington now? The women's basketball coach. Matthew Mitchell has a nicer house than I have. I'm just telling you, he has a nicer house than I have. What's funny, my sister lived in Lexington when you came here. She said people were driving by your house and taking dirt as they were building that house. Is that true? That's how crazy it was? I lived in a cul-de-sac, as you know, and and, and people, my neighbors, the only reason I knew one day uh, Harry Cohen next door came over and said, We've got to put a stop to this. These people on Saturdays and Sundays are just driving around the cul-de-sac. They're getting out of their car. They're taking dirt of your property, putting it in a jar. And I said, you're not serious. He said, no. He said, don't you see the cars? I said, no, not really. I don't, I don't, do, I don't go out too much. And uh, I, this is my, one of my better stories. I've, we lose to Louisville 
at the buzzer. Samaki Walker has, I think, 10 blocks, has a triple-double. We lose at the buzzer. And we had success against Louisville, so it was no big deal, to my thinking. So I'm working out downstairs on the treadmill, watching tape. And there's a knock on the door, and my son Michael, my oldest, comes down and says, Dad, there's a lady here, and she wants you. Remember, these are back when the big cassettes. She wanted to leave this for you. And I said, what is it? It's a tape. So I said, put it in, pal. I was on the treadmill. Put it in. And he put it in the TV. And, <laughs> and it was a, it opens up with uh, Kevin Costner and the bodyguard. And so I immediately called the police. And they found the lady. She was at the, uh, what's the, Wheeler Pharmacy there? Is that what it's called? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Right she there. Was at, she was she in was, one of the booths. She was at Wheeler Pharmacy. She was Pharmacy in the booth. And she was off of medication. She was... Um, she was at a, a living place for uh, people that were getting over some mental problems, and um, and she was off her meds. The family called to apologize, but when we lost the game, she went out, went to the, the tape, the bodyguard, brought it to my house, and said, he's going to need this for losing to Louisville. <laughs> well, because of where you lived, I live on Richmond Road, the main road, right. because I knew no one could stop. Well, when we moved here, there were accidents out in front of the house on Richmond Road. People stopped, and the guy behind him rammed into him because they were both looking up at this house. We had a person at 7.30 in the morning knock on the door to get an autograph. So now we had to put up a fence. I mean, I love these people. They're crazy, and I tell them all the time, you, you people, you know you're nuts. You're, you're, you're. They watch the tape here, as you know, more than I watch the tape. So if I watch the tape once, maybe twice, they'll watch the tape three, four times of the game. It's the greatest. I mean, I, it's, I've never seen anything like this, but uh, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. All right, let's go back to this. Let's go back to your five-star days. You and Ralph Willard, did you go to high school together or did you meet at five-star? Uh, Ralph was a teacher at the high school I went to. He, he taught uh, Billy Minotti, who I lost in 9-11, my brother-in-law. We knew each other. He played about, I played with Ralph's brother, Gene, and Ralph was about six years ahead of me in high school. And I, I would come back as a University of Hawaii assistant and visit the high school, and we became friends from the five-star camp. Yeah, and, and, and you went to the camp, and, and let me just, well, why don't you talk about five-star? Why don't you give them what five-star was and what it all was for all of us? Because, you know, you at, at Garf's, you'll, you gave a great eulogy and, uh, at Garf's uh, funeral. Well, I first met, I first met Goff. He was my, we went to Jack Donahue basketball camp. We had a great uh, player on a high school team named Tom Riker, who was a first round draft choice of the New York Knicks. And he kept talking about this camp he has. I think it was two years old at that time where all the great players come one week in Honesdale, Pennsylvania to compete. And Goff was right next to me and we automatically hit it off, but except he would smoke. He was a chain smoker, as you know, cigarettes. And, you know, you're in a bunk and it's, it's nice, fresh air being in the, in the Poconos. And every morning he'd wake up with that stale cigarette smoke and wake us all up. And we decided we were going to take all his clothes out at lunchtime and put him in the woods and hang him on trees because he wouldn't stop smoking. So he came back. He was so mad. And he said, I want, I want to know who did this. And I owned up to it. We became, we started laughing about it. I said, I'll get it all down. I went to the camp, and remember, that's one week back then. It, was se it wasn't three. It was seven no. days. Competition was incredible. I got my ass kicked in big time. Went back the second year, and then went back every year. Because like you, became a, a counselor coach 
then went on to become a lecturer, went on then, you know, back then I've had some issues with my skin. You know, they say, you know, sunscreen back then, we didn't use sunscreen. Well, we were, as you know, we were going from 8.30 in the morning to 10 o'clock at night and in the hot sun with our shirts off, working with the kids seven days in that week. And then the best part about it is they give you a check and you get $100. And you've already spent 150 by going out to get a decent meal each night. And, but you learn so much. You know, one day you have UB Brown lecturing, then you have Chuck Daly, then you have Dean Smith, Frank McGuire, Larry Brown, you know, on and on and on. You sit there as a camper, you sit there as a young counselor, and you realize that you're at, you're at Carnegie Hall right now listening to a famous pianist, and, and that pianist is, 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 is a person that everybody reveres, only you're sitting there on concrete as a camper, and then you're sitting on a bench as an assistant coach, and then you get a chance to lecture at Carnegie Hall and play. So Garfinkel opened up the door for all of us. You know, and I played in the uh, quarterfinals of the NIT at UMass. We brought 13,000 people from that. It, Dr. J, I signed my letter of intent. Well, back then, it was just scholarship papers. On the floor, when, when Julius Irving lost to Dean the Dream Memager, Al McGuire turned down the NCAA to play in the NIT. That's how big the NIT was back then. Signed the scholarship papers on the floor. Never forget it as long as I live. And, and, and I remember that was the last year that the NIT was, that anybody would ever turn it down because he had all New York players. But UMass was bringing 12,000, 13,000 people to that. It was a real big deal. But after the game, the following year in the NIT, Garfinkel says, well, what are you doing? I said, I signed a professional contract to play in Italy. I got a two-year deal. He said, how much are you making? I said, a lot of money, Goff, $19,000, $19,500. He said, you're wasting your time, kid. I said, no, Goff, I'm not. It's, it's a lot. Today, that would have been like 200000 today. And he said, look, you're going to spend four or five years playing over there, and you'll make a decent living. You'll come back. You won't have a whole lot. Nobody will ever remember that you were a basketball player. He says, go into coaching. In the back room, was the University of Hawaii and the cheerleaders. I said, Goff, if you could get me a job there as a graduate assistant, I'll take the job and forget the money. I was just joking. So he goes, oh, he buys my service. We go in the back, and the coach was partying and celebrating with his boosters. And I went up to him. I said, how does one become a grad assistant? And he said, well, I have one. His name was Artie Wilson. He said, he's played for me. You get room, board, books, and tuition. I said, that's it. He said, yes. So I, I, I was supposed to leave in August, and I had UB Brown, Chuck Daly, write a letter of recommendation. They both wrote, wrote a letter of recommendation, and the head coach called me in July and said, look, Audie Wilson decided to go to law school. Do you want the job? And I, I said, can I call you back tomorrow? I called Goff. I said, look, I need to meet you in the city. And I said, tell me, tell me the truth of what I should do. I said, I've, I've relied on you all my life. Well, what should I do? He said, take the job at Hawaii. Go into coaching. You're wasting your time as a player. You're never going to make it in the NBA. And, and go into coaching. Well, I did it. I was very fortunate because about two months later, I got named full-time coach, uh, full-time assistant. And then from there, I became head coach in the last six games. I didn't know that. Yep. 
I became head coach. How, how coach. old were you? You had to be 23 years old. How old were you? I was I was 24 as the head coach and coached against Jerry Tucking and the Roman oh Rebels with seven, with seven <laughs> players. <laughs> so I, I ended the job and I had three opportunities. I could become Jim Behan's assistant coach at Syracuse. I, on my, he interviewed me on my wedding afternoon. And I could become the assistant coach of Fordham or the head coach of Wagner. It was P.J. Colissimo and myself going for the job. And I, I took the assistant coach at Syracuse. And, and also Tuck offered me at, at UNLV. And again, Goff told me to go with Beheim. Uh, it would be a good opportunity for you. Uh, it's his first head coaching job. And I, I listened to him each step along the way. And then my next opportunity, obviously, was something that you remember, Jack Lehman, who was one of the toughest guys ever to play for. He was really, really tough. We all really had a major problem playing for him, but we all, after playing for him, loved him. And when we leave, we left and we realized we were playing for someone that was very difficult, very tough on all of us, but we really appreciated the discipline of what we had to go through to play for him. And then at 20, um, at 25 years old, 26 years old, <clears throat> I get a call from the AD at Boston University and said, you know, Jack Lehman is a legend here at Boston U. And um, he told me to hire you. How about that? And I thought, How about that? I thought about all, this, all the sweat and pain I went through, and we all really had a problem playing for this man. And here's a guy that made my career. Uh, he just said, go hire the assistant coach of Syracuse. He played for me. He'd be great for you. And and that's what coaching is all about, you know, doing, doing things that you never realize coaches do for you and they make your career. No, it, it's the stuff for Garf and you and I, and, and, and I want the listeners to hear more of you, but you know what he's done for me. And, and I get a, one real story about Will Klein. Will Klein said, what do you think of this kid over there? I'm at UMass at the time. And I said, he's not our level. He pulled me aside and said, come over here, son. Not your level. Don't you ever say not your level. If that kid isn't your level, you're getting fired. You better be recruiting the best players. And I thought about it from that point. Yeah, a bunch of them are going to say no, but you got to inquire. You got to go after, and that's the only way you get them. And that was from Will Klein, Howard Garfinkel's uh, assistant. Now, let me tell you, not only did you help me with the UMass job, but how about this one? Do you remember you recommended me to take the New Jersey Nets job? Yep. Did you do that on purpose? <laughs> hey, uh, Joe Taub. Is Joe Taub one of the great guys of all time? Yes, he is. And, you know, Joe was, you know, I recommend They wanted you. They wanted you. And you said, no, nah, I'm going to torture Cal. You, get him. You, you know, it's, it, was, it was a job that, as you know, the New Jersey Mets job is very, very difficult. And I recommended the job two different times because Joe's a friend of mine and a uh, good friend of Larry, the scouts. And I said, I recommended one time you, and then the next time I, I recommended Jim Valvano. And actually Jim called me leaving the meeting and there was seven of them and it was all set. Go and take the job, the whole bit. And, and Jim said, you know, I can't, Joe Tab's fine, but there are six other guys in this room and my head is spinning. I could never do it, <laughs> but that job needs, you know, it not only needs a coach, it needs a marketeer. It needs somebody to keep the Knicks from getting all the publicity. You know, someone like yourself, someone like Jim Valvano, someone, it's got to be more than just a coach, but it, 
it's almost a job that's that because of the publicity that you don't get, you're always fighting the Knicks. But it, well, I did a hell of a job, so they fired me, and uh, <laughs> we had one good year, and I got fired. So it was. Uh, I'll tell you what, though, for both of us, my NBA experience helped me. Even though, you know, uh, because I went in not knowing a lot. I mean, you, you went, who would have had the most impact on you as, as a coach? Would you say it would have been Yubi? No question, Yubi Brown. You know, when I, I listened to the stories about uh, Nick's, uh, Nick Saban, the football coach at uh, Alabama, it's almost like I'm listening to the same stories that Mike Fratello told or Richie Arabato told about Yubi Brown and all the people that worked for Yubi. Um, you know, the ass, the ass chewings you would get and, and all those things are being told. But, you know, Jonathan, it's an interesting thing. I Bernard King blows out his, his knee and every single day working with UB Brown, I felt like I was, I, I was in a library somewhere just reading the greatest books, the stories, the practices, the, the tense moments of every single day. And he brought the best out of you or you'd be in trouble. And I never forget this. Bernard King blows out his knee that night. Uh, but no, about two nights later, I'm meeting with Lula Amarillo after watching Providence play Georgetown. And I meet with Lou and they're in dead last place since the inception of the Big East. And I realize that it's a tough job. And I get on the bus and Yubi said, how did it go, kid? And I said, Yubi went well. He's, I think he's going to offer me a job, but I'm going to turn it down. Yubi, I'm going to stick it out with you. And I never forget this because Yubi didn't show a lot of emotion. He kissed me on the, on the forehead and said, kid, you take that job. My days are numbered here with Bernard King going down because an ACL back then was, was career, career ending. And even though it didn't end his career, he said, you, you take that job. I don't have a whole lot of time left with Bernard going down. And I never forget that. It was one of the most selfless things. You know, it's, it's a, I took the job. It probably helped me because UB got fired a year or two later. And I, I wound up actually succeeding him uh, from, from that, uh, going from Providence, but it was a selfless thing to do. Something I appreciated all my life. I've, I've always had great mentors, you know, from, from golf to UB Brown and UB prepared me for the NBA. I had a really a fun two years with the Knicks, but the NBA has changed. Uh, it's, it's totally different today than it was back then. Because remember, John, we go to the, we take the first flight out at eight o'clock and then we get up the next morning at six o'clock for an eight o'clock flight to our next destination. Today it's let's hop on the charter, eat steak and lobster and go stay to Ritz Carlton and uh, wake up at 11 o'clock. So we were flying commercial. Did you ever fly private back then? It just had started. It just literally just had started. And, and can I tell you, it didn't help us win more games. It, it, it made you a little less tired, but we were still bad. Let's take a quick time out. I've had a bunch of people come up and thank me for introducing them to ZipRecruiter. I'm telling you, if you're someone that owns or works for a business, you're going to want to listen up. When you're hiring, posting your job in one place is kind of like a coach going to a game with one play. It's not a winning approach. Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. 
With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter. And ZipRecruiter's website shows trending career fields, cities, and searches, too. And ZipRecruiter lets you add multiple people to your account. It's the most efficient way for your team to find the best tire. And how's this for efficiency? No more juggling emails or calls to your office. With ZipRecruiter, quickly scan candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash CoachCal. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by more than 1 million businesses. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash CoachCal. You guys know I've got lots of love for Papa John's, and I'm thrilled that Papa and his team are part of this podcast. When I spoke with Papa last week, I told him that I'd love to have a special offer code exclusively for my listeners so they can order whatever menu items they love with a great discount. And Papa said, sure. So thanks to Papa and our friends at Papa John's, we're extending a special offer to those who listen in to my podcast. Use promo code COACHCAL and receive a 25% off your regular menu price order when you go to papajohns.com or Papa John's app to place your order. This offer is good at participating stores in the U.S. only. You can use Coach Cal and try Papa John's new stuffed cheese sticks, and I've told you guys how good they are. You can get the bacon cheddar or the Wisconsin stuffed cheese sticks. I'm telling you, if you love cheese, you'll love these stuffed cheese sticks. But they're only on the menu for a limited time. Again, use my promo code, COACHCAL, and get 25% off your regular menu price order any day of the week. And grab yourself a side of stuffed cheese sticks for just $5 more. Better ingredients, better pizza, better stuffed cheese sticks. Papa John's. I got to tell this story. I was at Pittsburgh at the time. You were, I was an assistant. You were the head coach of Providence. You had just taken over. Um, and you walked in and said, the only way we're going to win is scramble up the game and play reckless basketball, and we got to use that three-point line. That you might have been, and, and I'm guessing, I don't think anybody else at that point had done that. You had Billy Donovan. You had some good players, but you had to play to who you had. And that league at that time now, people don't realize, the Big East, every team in the Big East had two and three NBA players. Every team. I mean, the only teams that didn't were maybe you, and I'm trying to think who else, because BC had a couple pros. I mean, you go right down the line. Every team had NBA players. Yeah, just Seton Hall. Seton Hall and us had, we, since the inception of the Big East, we were either tied or in last place. And, you know, when the three-point shot came in, I said, okay, we're going to full-court press. We don't have great athletes, but we can shoot. So we're going to take advantage of this from Obviously, from the NBA days, I knew how potent that three-point line could be. Watching ABA basketball back in its day, I knew how potent it could be. And I said, you know what? We're going to lead the country in three-point shooting, and we're going to take seven to 15 threes a game. Did then you say seven, seven to 15? <laughs> seven to 15. And you thought that was a lot, and right? That was a lot. And then we, I played the Russians, and the Russians taught me. We played them in an exhibition game. 
we wind up taking 17 and the Russians take 29. And they taught me something of how to take it the way they moved the basketball. So immediately I, I said, we've got to take anywhere from 20 to 25 threes per game. And this is just part of the story of love. We play early in the season, Seton Hall, St. John's with Louis, uh, PJ, Rowley, John Thompson. Think of the players on those teams. Like crazy. Like literally NBA Hall of Famers on some of those teams. And the four coaches combined during those games took five threes <laughs> combined with all the teams combined. They were so much against the three. John didn't want to take it. Louie didn't want to take it. Rowley didn't want to take it. And they were so much against it that we were taking it. They thought I was crazy. And it was such a, it was not only great for us, but it was great the fact that they wouldn't take it. So now you didn't have to worry about that three-point shot because they were adamant that it was a terrible rule. It's funny. And I remember we're at Pitt and we get a lead. And it was no lead. I mean, you're up 15. It's not a lead. And I remember I may have grabbed you after the game and just said, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm like blown away because I think we may have won that game by a point or lost. I can't remember. But it was like, you know, you think it's over. It is never over. Um, that being said, how about the LSU game on the road? How many were you down? Yeah, we were down 31 with 15 minutes and 30 seconds to go. <laughs> and you know, you, oh. You're a coach, and I called timeout, and I said, look, guys, it's not. A, I, I really was calm, usually you know, in a nervous breakdown. Uh, I, Dick Vitale's doing the game, and, and I said to the guys, look, it's not all night. Let's just get this to 20, make it respectable, get back on the bus, we'll, we'll We'll get back. And I don't believe that, game. but go ahead. But that's good. Well, go ahead. It's a great story. Semi, semi true. About fifty percent. Uh, and then I, and then we thought making the comeback, and making the comeback. And the interesting thing is, we win it in regulation. And and I never forget when we get back into Bob Knight calls. Remember the thing that Bob Knight had the problem with Dale. Oh Brown? yeah, 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 yeah. One uh, was, was one was saying about this, and the other was talking about his the divorce and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah, and they asked Bob. They asked Bob Knight uh, in the in press conference. They were down, I guess, fifteen, and he came back and they asked Bob Knight at the press conference, "Did you feel that you were dead?" I think Shaquille may have been on the team, and he said, "Yeah, I really was worried about uh, the, if we could come back, but then I looked down the other end of the bench and saw Dale Brown." <laughs> And that was a big, big thing back then. And and Dale, I happen to And love. I do, too. And I do, too. Yeah, I, I think he's not only an outstanding coach, but a really good guy. And, and uh, he came, he said to the press, because he's always positive, he said to the press, well, wait a second, you give Patino all the credit about the comeback. What about the fact that I was up 31 points? Why shouldn't I get some credit <laughs> And I thought I thought that was great. I really did. There were some, there were some battles back there. All right, I'm going to shift this. I'm coaching my son. You had Richard on the bench with you. Uh you're watching every. I know you're watching every score. You're watching every game you can. Um, knowing you, you're watching tape of the games. Um, last year struggled some. They're kicking butt this year. I mean, tell me, how do you deal with it? I mean, how. He loses. Are you a sick when you lose? When he loses, you know it's it, it's a it's a helpless feeling. Yeah, it's really a helpless feeling because I went to the Purdue game uh, the other night. Oh, you went up to the game? 
And what a great win. Yeah, How the hell did they up. win that game? Purdue's really good. You know, they play, they, they are, and they play great. Richard, Richard's team is so much different. But you know what's bothered me, John? You know, you've seen it, the stories you heard about Coach K, you know, that they in early on they wanted to second-guess him. But all my assistant coaches become head coaches. Uh, a few years back, they were second-guessing Nick Cronin. He had to take over for Bob Huggins. They were second-guessing, didn't know they'd do the job, and look at him today. Kevin Willard in, um, at, at Seton Hall, same thing, and then he's Big East Coach of the Year. Everybody's in such a rush. They don't want to build it the right way with give somebody a chance to get into junior senior, give somebody a chance to build a, a culture the right way. So he's, you know, he's last year he struggles and he, he, we talked a little bit about it, you know, where they can get better. I said, I'll tell you where you're going to get better. You got to get some size. You got to get some guys who can play the game. I said, he said, well, that's tough. You've got to first, you know, what comes first, you know, you're caught on a horse. I said, well, you just have got to expand a little bit recruiting wise and get some size and they need some length. So he's got terrific length, but you know, my wife and I will sit and watch a game. She'll be right in front of the Ottoman. She'll have her, she'll be on her knees, rosary beads, a missile, prayer book, and, 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 and the whole game. Is, and I'm living in She's, t- she's doing know, a run on the beads. She's doing a run on the beads. All right. Oh, hey, all right. What about if you played Richard? Who's she rooting for? Well, we played each other in Puerto Rico two years ago, and, and I told her, I said, look, sit behind the bench and root for him. Um, and I said, just, she said, well, I'm going to. And I said, yeah, definitely root for him. <laughs> and we split the family up. You know, two of my boys came with me, and the rest were with him. But, you know, deep down, I hated the game. Yeah. And uh, and you'll love this. So before the game, we're on the beach together, doing a lot of things. He's hugging me. He gives me a blow by after the game. <laughs> he gives me like a quick handshake and blows no, hey, by. What did he have? No thumb. He had no thumb. He just went right by you <laughs> on the shake. <laughs> but but I do I do live and die. Tell me what it's like coaching your son. It, I'm I'm loving it because. How much time do we spend away from our family? Now he's with me every moment. Uh, the issue becomes his mother, like. She thinks he should be playing more. Like when I come home, he had two points in two minutes in a game. And I walk in and she said, you talk about efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. He had two points in two minutes. Play him. Play him more. And it's funny as heck. Look, I'm having a ball. But I'm. let me say this. I'm not embarrassed to tell you. I'm putting him in every game I can put him in. And I'll run out of bounce plays for him. I'll run a play for him. I don't care. It's my son. I just know that when you're watching your son like you are, it eats you up more than your own stuff. And Richard's doing an outstanding job. And I know what you said is so true, um, but I've had fun with my son. All right, let's, let's do this one. Um, no one has done a better job of preparing assistant coaches. Um, you know, you have former players, whether it's Billy or Travis, uh, uh, Steve, and Pelfrey's doing a heck of a, you know, he's been ahead. Scotty Padgett's doing great down at Sanford. And then the other guys from Mick uh, to, I didn't know Andy Enfield worked for you. Where did Andy Enfield work he for was you? A, he was our shooting coach with the Celtics. Um, oh, okay. And he did a really good job for me. He did a terrific job. Uh, my GA at, at Providence was, uh, was Jeff Van Gundy, who used to How sleep on my one? couch. Yep. And then I how about a, Frank? Uh, how about Frank? Frank Vogel, Frank, manager at Kentucky, a student manager. 
and does a great job, by the way. I've watched his teams when he was in Indy and now there. Unbelievable. So let, let's just talk because I'm going to say it again. No one does a better job of preparing them um, to get them ready so that when they have their opportunities, they can succeed. I really did learn that from UB Brown. Um, back then, there was one assistant coach, and then with Richie Adubato would go on the road and fax me the plays of the other team back then. So there's only one assistant coach. Today, when you look, you got seven. It looks like a security team on the bench of an NBA game. And, and UB taught me, he said, kid, I want you to act as if you're the head coach of the New York Knicks. And I want you to coach that way. And I want you to realize that every scouting plan, everything you come up with, you could be fired as a head coach if you do something wrong. So he said, I want you to put that type of pressure. That's what I did with Michael. That's what I did with all my assistants. Put that type of pressure. This is your, to be a head, act like a head coach. If you're talking too much in practice, I'll let you know. But you go ahead and coach. So I, I, he would give me a free reign to coach. I knew when to step back. Uh, I, I obviously knew my place. And I tell my guys the same exact thing. If you want to be a head coach, act like a head coach. Make the program yours. Now, you're never going to get any credit unless I give it to you because nobody gives the assistant coaches credit. But you act like a head coach. You take the responsibilities that – whether it's in the dormitory, whether it's in the classroom, whatever it may be, you take the responsibilities of a head coach and you go to bed at night worried about every little thing like a head coach. And my guys have done that, you know, from, from Ralph Willard to Kevin Willard to Mick Cronin to Marvin Menzies to Reggie Theus, who was terrific with me as well, and to all the guys, Herb Sendek and Billy Donovan, and, and uh, now Alan Edwards is at Wyoming and, and you know, all these guys, Stu Jackson became the head coach of Wisconsin. Jim O'Brien was terrific, uh, who I had with me as well. But they were all great because they they acted like head coaches. They took the responsibility. When we lost, they were just as disappointed. And also, I, I tell them all, look, you can't spend a long time in this type of environment working these hours. You're going to be a head coach. So give everything you can. But some of these guys want to move on quickly. Some want to stay. Kevin Willard stayed with me for nine years, and it was great having him with me. But I just think that if you just, your assistant coaches just take that responsibility of trying to act like a head coach, they'll be successful head coaches. Well, I got to tell you, I need you to go read this book because you're going to love it. It's called Super Bosses, and it talks about Bill, uh, uh, Bill Walsh, who was at the 49ers. And his assistant coaches have won more world championships or Super Bowls than any. It's not even close. Him preparing assistant coaches and how it does. I think it would be a great read for you because I went through it, whether it be assistants and for me too was assistants and my players. But super bosses, make sure you go get that. And Uh, while you do that, go get five more of my books too. I've already bought my limit now. (laughs) My budget's tight here. (laughs) <laughs> All right, here, here's the last thing. We're head coaches. We oversee these programs. And they're, like you said, what you did with Rock, uh, where you're sending people out. There's a big difference between responsibility and accountability. We're all responsible for our programs. But I've argued this for years. The head coach, the accountability 
that goes on with everything from assistants to players. Look, I have curfew. And there are things that happen, and you're, we're doing everything we can. I mean, what? where would you say, when you talk about responsibility and accountability uh, for a head coach? Well, you know, it's, it's just like being a parent, Jeff. It's not different. I mean, it, it, this is a – we try to parent our, our children to do the right things at night. You know, you, you, your kids go out, and that what time do we have to be home? All right, nothing good happens after midnight, so I want you home at midnight. Well, from nine to midnight, I'm not sure what they're doing at the party. I'm not. I'm hoping they're going to do the right things that the mother and father taught them the right things. Well, in college, they're of the age right now where you'd like to think your player's going to do the right things, and certainly we want the responsibility, we want the accountability, but you know we we can't be the scapegoats for society today. You know, we just can't be that way. We're, we're, coaches want the best for their kids. They want the best for their, for their children, for their players. And they're go- I haven't met a coach yet in this business that doesn't want to see their players succeed, that doesn't care for their players, that doesn't show them true love. I, I really, every single guy I come across today wants to see their kids do well. And But there, there reaches a certain point where we can't be the scapegoats for the ills of society. And, and that's what happens sometimes. I know I went through it in my situation right now. I went through it and, you know, it's, it would be the furthest thing that I would ever, ever see. I just named all those assistant coaches. You know, if I have 29 that have gone on to prosperity and doing a great job and one went the wrong way, well, uh, I've got to be accountable for that one person and, um, uh, and feel very saddened that he did the wrong things. That being said, you know, there's certain things that, that we can't, we can't control our lives. This is a college atmosphere right now. And, certain things that we're not in control of. We are in control. If they go to their class, we are in control. They tell the truth. They do the right things. They listen to us. They're, they're early. They're, they're obedient in practice. They, they create discipline in their lives. But there's certain things we cannot control as a parent as well as a basketball coach. I, I, I got to say this to you, and I'm going to let you go. Ready for this? And, and as a college coach, when we get a call, the phone rings at midnight. You get sick to your stomach, correct? No if the phone rings at midnight, you get sick. People don't realize you're dealing with people's children. As an NBA coach, if you get a call at midnight, like it's a wrong number. It's a wrong number. And what we're trying to do and how we're trying to do it, I mean, I agree with you, and I've said it all along. I mean, if a coach has done something, okay. But to the black eye of vacated games and all the other stuff – where they say, well, the, the guy at Notre Dame had a great one. Wait a minute, between two students and you're vacating my games? Why are you doing this? I just think you're right, and my hope is as we go forward as coaches together, our community of coaches who do care about it, we're competitive. Look, you and I are competitive. But we sat in Augusta for a half hour and talked on a treadmill, and people, you should have been in there. Everybody's like, no way, yeah. I mean, yeah, we're competitive. We want to kill each other. But – you're still out there saying this profession is very hard and the only people that know what we're going through are other coaches. That's it. And so um, let me let me just end on this. I wish you luck until we play you next year, and I hope we beat your brains in next year because that was just miserable for me walking off that court. The handshake was fine. You know, when you beat us, when I was at UMass and you won the national title, I shook your hand in the semis, and I meant it. I was – Go win this thing. I was happy for you. Uh, but I was just as happy when the next year 
we beat you in Detroit. And I shook your hand and said, I hope you win the rest. No, that was the game. That was before the final four, wasn't it? Yeah. That was the same year. Yeah. That was the same year. That was, that was the game that convinced me to play Anthony Epps at point guard instead of Tony Doe. Do you give me credit for the national title then? No, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> well, it's just now we did. Now I helped you. <laughs> Coach, I appreciate it. Thanks for spending time. Same here, Joe. Have a help, healthy and happy 2017. Enjoy coaching your son. I, I know it's going to be a blast for you. And uh, certainly uh, 2017 is going to bring the Wildcats to great prosperity. And the Louisville Cardinals. Coach, wish you well. Happy New Year. Well, there you have it. We didn't fight. We didn't slap each other. There was a little fake news to start it all, to have some fun. Um, we talked about the NCAA, how we both feel um, about it. I think it was a terrific interview. I enjoyed doing it. I think he enjoyed doing it also. Um, they're having a fabulous year. They're playing well. I think... Uh, uh, you're talking about a team that has the chance to be in the Final Four and win a national title, and I hope we're in that same boat. Now, next week, oh yeah, next week, you will lose your mind when you hear who is on the CalCast. And you'll also lose your mind when you listen to the conversation um, and how open this artist was. I had a ball doing it. I hope you have a ball listening to it next Thursday. Thanks, folks. Thanks.